Uh, Shane, would you mind closing those two doors? Thank you. So we're going to start right at verse 1 of chapter 24 in the book of Luke. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Gal- still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things of the eleven and to the rest, to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed like them idle to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now Behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed in reason, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you and have you not known the things which happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to, the, to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find the body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went with them to the tomb and found it just as women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were, where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and vanished from their and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did our heart not burn within us, while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? That's where I'm going to start. That's where I'm going to stop in Luke 24. Um, I do want to point out that there is a very specific intent in the historical chronicling of the the nation of Israel, of the things that that took place, that were chronicled, that, you know, and there's a a very surface-level reading of them. You read them as history. These these things did, in fact, happen. It's It's not made up, right? These people were real. They inhabited the land of Canaan, right? And the, the tribes were real, the divisions. Anyway, Jesus here spoke to them, right? And I here's, here's another, like, just think of these two men growing up, knowing the scriptures, and for, um, you know, for an occasion, walking to Emmaus, all of a sudden, this man, this prophet, right? They don't know it's Jesus at the time that he's speaking, but he begins to tell them about the scriptures, right? All these things that they'd known from their youth, that they're, they're taught in by their parents, by the community they grow up in. And suddenly he's making it come to life for them, right? 
these things have a double meaning, right? Not, not all things. I'm not saying that we can read what we want to in Scripture. We've got to be careful, right? But Jesus is simply saying, this is all about me. He says it's all about, right? That, how is it that you're so foolish not to believe? You're so slow of heart, he says. And um, what he does to prove to them that the Christ was supposed to suffer these things and then rise again and ascend into his glory was he opened the scriptures. That's where he started, right? These things were recorded beforehand so that when they came, when they transpired, you could be confident in this man being the one sent by God the Father to die in our place. We can, we can put our trust in that. So there's that. Um, this is... This is this is Christianity, really. This is how we function as Christians. And I, I want to um, I want to make, I want to use a couple examples. If you turn to Acts 9, you have the example of Paul on the road um, on the road to Damascus. He's converted. We're not going to read through the whole thing like I did just there with uh, Luke 24. But in Acts 9, he has the uh, confrontation with Christ. And um, then as he loses his sight, he uh, spends three days praying and fasting. He is baptized by Ananias. And at the baptism, he receives his sight and the Holy Spirit. And at the, after these things occur, says in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he was the Son of God. Then all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Right? This is, this is the same thing, the same type of scenario. A man steeped in Hebrew scripture, what we call the Old Testament, right? The, the, the Bible study on the road to Emmaus. You hear Bible scholars talking about it. This is probably the greatest Bible study ever given, right? Um, how, can you imagine the length of it? Jesus going through everything, right? The temple, the sacrifices, um, the, the story, the history of Israel, the, the wilderness wanderings, all this stuff points to Christ. And then and Paul, his eyes opened being filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing the Old Testament like the back of his hand, and going in to the synagogues. And the first thing he does as he just opens up that same book he's known his whole life, and he proves to them Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's, who was prophesied to come for us and die in our place, right? Rise again. These things are true. So it's, again, this is... Um, it's a function of Christianity. In, in Acts 18, um, the ministry of Apollos, right? So uh, I'll let you guys turn there. Just a few chapters. But Apollos is another man known for being eloquent in speech. And says there was a certain Jew, excuse me, verse 24 of Acts chapter 18. There was a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, Achaia the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, right? Christian practice, using scriptures to prove his point, just as Paul did, um, being built on the Old Testament, right? You, you can, in fact, you can go through the Old Testament, and which is what we're going to primarily do now, and you can show who Jesus is, his person, where he was supposed to be born, what his ministry was supposed to be about, what he was going to do, that he was going to die, that he was going to come back from the dead. He was going to see the people 
that believed in it. He was going to turn everyone to the Lord, people all over, all over the world. You read all that from the Old Testament, right? These things, it, it's confusing because you read, we'll, we'll get to passages about it. And this is certainly why a lot of the Jews were confused. You read certain things about the Messiah being victorious. And then you also read certain things about the Messiah suffering, and even to the point of death. So reconciling those two things um, before the, the fullness of revelation in, in Jesus Christ, and then expounding on it uh, more excellently to his apostles who he then sent out, it could be confusing for the Jews, thinking that was all one occurrence, one coming. But again, Apollos and Paul, just two examples uh, in the New Testament. Okay, so we'll, just to reference the book of Matthew. We, we understand Matthew as being a Levite, being part of uh, that tribe, um, being, again, steeped in the scriptures, right? Selling himself to Rome in order, in order to make a living, uh, not seeing much to, not, not seeing much life in Jewish religion, kind of selling himself out of it, you know, betraying his upbringing. But when, when Jesus sees a man sitting at the tax booth, right, and he calls him to follow him, Matthew dropped everything. And when he puts together his gospel, he has that phrase that he says over and over again. It's recorded 99 times. Well, 99 Old Testament prophecies are recorded in Matthew, and quite frequently he uses that phrase. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says that over and over again. Old Testament. Look, guys. This had to happen, and this did happen, and, and this is who did it, right? And I'm willing to die for it. So uh, he, he also starts his book with the genealogy, right? And that's to show that Jesus has the right to the throne through his, uh, through his stepfather, Joseph. And um, these things I want to, while it's important to us to know why we believe, Right to to be confident in it, and so that when we're in a in a place of desperation or depression or whatever it is, whatever we're getting caught up in, we can know that there's more to be gained from falling on our face in prayer than there is to feeding our flesh. However you want to do it, whatever the sin is, right, whatever the fleshly desire is, and. There's also a mission that we're given, so we got to know why. We got to know. We got to know why we believe, right? Because it's not a just cause thing. You can't. That doesn't. That doesn't convince many people. I shouldn't say. I'm not going to say anybody because sometimes it does. Just a fervent, you know. I just believe, right? But that's that's not the example we see set. So the whole just cause thing doesn't really work, and and the experience thing, right? Because then you come up against cults, um, the Mormons, right? They had the experience of the burning in the bosom, right? And uh, or or just, I mean, because you can have great experiences with Christ. You can be inside of, you can even be inside of a cult and have a great experience and allow that to be the thing that convinces you that that cult is of God, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses have a perverted version of Jesus Christ. And a lot of them might cling to it just because they had a, they had a great experience. And I'm not saying everybody does, but but we can't be here for that reason, right? Hopefully, we know why we believe, but we want to be so good at understanding it for ourselves that our children know why we believe, so that hopefully they can know why they believe, right? Because believing because mom and dad believe doesn't do anything for them. It might not even be authentic. They, they got to know why they believe. They, they got to have a reason to place their faith in Christ. And and this is a this is a really good reason. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in uh, John three. This is an incredibly famous passage. He he says you you guys know the verse. John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever have everlasting life." For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because 
he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what's the consequence? It's huge. It's massive. The consequence to knowing to knowing who Jesus is, to believing in, in who Jesus is, right? The importance of knowing why, being able to tell people that you know why. Because Jesus is he makes very bold statements, right? That if you guys heard me saying, um, you should leave. Well, I'm not the senior pastor here, but if I was the senior pastor here and I was making statements like Jesus made, then you should leave and never come back, right? If I told you I was the bread of life that came down from God and I give life to all men, or if I told you I was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through me, those are really radical things. Those are things that only the the second person of the Trinity gets to say, right? That's what that's Jesus's claim, and uh, I don't get to say things like that. But for people that don't know God, they already stand condemned. They stand condemned because of their sin. First John five, I believe, it tells us that those who have the Son have life, but those who don't, the wrath of God abides on that one. Right. Those Jesus didn't come to condemn people. People are already condemned. They're condemned for their sin. And you seal your fate when you reject Jesus. And we're called to be salt and light. There is a thing that uh, our pastor Will says quite often, and it's uh, well, actually, he doesn't he hasn't said it as frequently in recent years, but he was the first person I heard say it. Back in 2012, um, and you maybe you've heard him say it recently, but God hangs his hat on prophecy, right? He stakes his reputation on being able to accurately tell what's going to happen in the future and even give you an accurate reason for what happened in the past, right? And uh, he, he goes through uh, what's sometimes referred to as the, the trial of the false gods in Isaiah 40 through verse, uh, excuse me, through chapter 46, where um, Isaiah is, is talking about God. What God's nature is like, right? God created all by himself, right? And then he, talk, he talks about the nature of idols and uh, how they're worthless. And, and um, there's a, I want to turn to Isaiah 9, right? Because we learn about the nature of this one who's coming, this promised Messiah, this Messiah that we recognize to be Jesus, right? And he's, he's a light that shines in a dark land. And, and Isaiah's, he's, you know, he's witnessing to a stubborn, rebellious Israel people in Isaiah 9 and a passage that we're all probably very familiar with. He speaks of this Messiah. He says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on, upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Right? Uh, in Isaiah chapter 10, he I, Isaiah identifies Yahweh in verse 21 at, with that same name, El Gabor, mighty God, God the Father, mighty God, right? Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, he is also El Gabor. He's mighty God. He's using that same title. This person who's coming, he's going to be a child. And he's going to be given. He's going to be a son with a pre-existence, a son who is given, right? The child's born, the son's given. He pre-existed before he came. He'll be mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Praise God. I praise God for the end of that. It's God's zeal that's going to perform this. It's not our faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness. It's God's will. It's God's desire. It's his sovereignty. We can be as, as sure as anything. God said it. It's going to happen. And, uh, and well, we already know that Christ came. But the rest of the promises that follow for those who believe, we can be, we can be sure that they will occur. So um, Jesus, or this Messiah, this second person, He's, he's divine, this one coming. So the person of the Messiah. And then where he comes to. Many of you probably also know this. Micah 5.2 gives us a, um, 
a description of where he's coming to. And God says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, right? There's the Messiahship, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And of course, and you guys probably remember that Mary um, wasn't impregnated in Bethlehem, but it was the sovereignty of God that caused her to want to travel nine months pregnant during a census that was decreed by a wicked Roman government um, and, and get her to Bethlehem where she gave birth to Jesus. This is, a, this is just another, another stamp, another fingerprint on what this Messiah looks like, where he's going to come from, right? And it's, it's um, he flees to Egypt. He comes back. They, they dwell in Nazareth. Remember, like, there's, there's things that are said about him. Uh, it's Andrew and John who come to Peter, and they say, we've found the Messiah from Nazareth. Is it, no, is that Peter? It's not Peter. Um, Nathaniel. Was it Nathaniel who said, does anything good come from Nazareth? I'm, free, I'm spacing now, but the point I'm making is that um, there was nothing, uh, nothing exceptional about Jesus, nothing exceptional about where he came from, and except that he fulfilled the prophecies of God. Right? He was... He was an average person from outward appearance, but he fulfilled God's prophecies, right? It's, it'd be like, you know, someone was like, hey, we found the Messiah, and he's from Lewiston. Lewiston, does anything good come from? Oh, sorry, Lewiston. But anyway, so Luke records the census, right? Gets Mary to Bethlehem. Um, Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. And then Isaiah 53 we got to turn to Isaiah 53. The uh, more to do with what Jesus, what, what his person looks like, what it is he's going to accomplish, right? These things, these things recorded seven, remember, these things recorded 700 years. Well, this, you know, about 700 years before Jesus' birth. And then again, just so you guys know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint translation, um, we have copies of that predate Christ by hundreds of years that confirm that these words as recorded in here are accurate. They haven't changed. But uh, starting in um, verse 13 of Isaiah 52, it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage will be marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who will believe? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. This is talking about Christ has no form or comeliness, no splendor. No magnificence. There's nothing about him that's desirous. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Right? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. And there's that seeming incompatibility. So we just read in Isaiah 9 how the government's going to be upon his shoulders and in the end of his kingdom, there will be no end, right? The, the, the Israelites missing it because there's, there's, there's a different um, part of his ministry that has to be fulfilled in his first coming. And the, the seeming incompatibility caused them to look on him and say, look, he's, he's, a, he's stricken by God. That's what they were saying. They thought that Jesus was dying for his own sins. Right? They mocked him when, when he was being Christian. If you're the Messiah, tell us who struck you in the face. Right? And, and they thought that he was, but yet he was dying for their sins. Surely he has borne our griefs. Right? Smitten by God and afflicted, he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the Jews who reject Jesus have a hard way of explaining this. Um, There is previous chapters in Isaiah that refer to Israel as a servant of God. And then in this passage, they want to insist that, I mean, and especially Anno Domini, A.D., since Christ's um, life on earth, they want to insist that this is still talking about, um, about the nation of Israel. Although before Christ came, uh, almost unanimously the teaching was that this in fact was a separate entity. This servant was not Israel. This was a person. And one of the things that shows that this cannot be Israel is the end of verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Israel can't take any of our sins, right? There's later on in verse 9, it says of this servant, he has done no violence, the end of verse 9, and nor was any deceit in his mouth. Gosh, The whole Old Testament is about how much of an utter failure Israel is, right? Israel Israel was full of deceit. Israel did many immoral things. There was violence all throughout the land. So anyway, this is not Israel. I don't know if any of you are wondering that, but that is a teaching among uh, rabbinic Judaism now. It wasn't popular before Christ, and it doesn't hold any weight. But continuing in verse 7, saying of the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was crucified between two common thieves, right? And then buried in a rich man's tomb. Continues, yet it pleased the Lord, right? It was God's pleasure. It was his will to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, an offering for sin, an offering for your sin, for my sin, right? That pleased God. That was God's will, That Christ, it says, he was crushed. That Christ would be crushed for our our justification, it's going to say. He shall see his seed, that that is the servant spoken of. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. But he was just cut off. Verse 8 said he was cut off from the land of the living. How is this that he sees his seed? It's the resurrection. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my my righteous servant shall justify many. That is you who believe in faith. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. and He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I, I think Philippians 2 every time I read this, right? Let this mind be in you, right? Paul talking about division and humility. Let this mind be in you, who was, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. And he came in the form of the likeness of man. And in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above Every name that is the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and earth and and on the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is, in fact, Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. He will, he came, right? And no one recognized him because I was going to say he wasn't floating above the ground. But You guys, I think, get what I mean. He wasn't their uh, valiant military leader, right? He wasn't their economic prince. 
He was the one who came to make uh, to make a payment that would satisfy God the Father for our sin. And that's that's what pleases God, that he would willingly die. Right? Philippians 2 says he willingly took on the form of a bondservant. Being in the very form of God, the very essence, he, had a, he, he was of the very nature of God. And he humbled himself to that point. I want to, so you get the picture that's painted. It's about the life of this servant being despised, right? And at the same time, causing kings of the world even to wake up. Um, but it specifically talking about his death, it uses that word, that saying, that phrase in verse 8, that he was cut off from the land of the living. And this reminds me of Daniel chapter 9. And you guys probably know that Daniel um, is a very prophetic book. There are things in it that absolutely blow people's minds, especially secular scholars that deny the existence of God, right? Because so much about Daniel um, is so incredibly accurate, and we can see it has already played out. And um, there's this prophecy given by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 about the Messiah. And it's referred to as a 70 weeks prophecy. Many of you probably know it. And um, starting in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. This street, the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And so it's taught there's actually, I can't remember what it's called now, but um this is it's a the seven can refer to just a group of similar things. In this in this context, um, it is speaking of years. So seven weeks of years, it's seven years, and then sixty-two weeks of years. So that's sixty-two times seven. So you have a total of sixty-nine weeks of years. And um, if you go through the math, it it comes out to one hundred seventy-three thousand eight hundred eighty days from the going forth of the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. The command given in Nehemiah 2, they head back into the land. And then there's this messianic fervor around the time of Christ. The clock is counting down and people understand this, right? And um, there's, there's, uh, you, you read in the, the Talmud about the, the priests going down the street as Rome takes their right to um, govern away from them. They, they can't do capital punishment. You guys know that. They they, they take Jesus to the Romans because they want the Romans to kill Jesus because you've taken it from us. But if you don't, you know, Jesus is claiming to be a king. And so anyway, you guys know what I'm getting at. The point is um, Jesus is on the scene. He's a, he's a young boy, but as they're, as they're crying and ripping their, their, um, their garments and covering their head in ash and crying that their scripture has been broken, Jesus is there. But there's still this countdown, 173,880 days. And what the scripture says in verse 26, that it says, after the 62 weeks, right, the completion of the total of the 69 weeks of years, the Messiah shall be cut off. There again, there's that, that, that phrase, that cut off, that um, Isaiah 53, verse 8, the dying of violent death. So here what you have is you have bookends on this prophecy. This is when it's going to start. This is when it's going to stop. And, and, he, and he says it's going to happen as you continue. The Messiah should be cut off, but not for himself, right? That's like Isaiah 53. When the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end of it shall be with a flood. So the temple is going to be destroyed. It's, pro it's right there in the prophecy. It's got to happen before the temple is destroyed. And we know when the temple is destroyed. You can count down the days, right? It comes right into uh, Jesus' Palm Sunday, riding into Jerusalem. But even if you want to deny the, the accuracy of the prophecy, it specifically says right here, Messiah is going to come before the temple is destroyed. He's going to die a violent death. How did you miss that, guys? Right? And we, we know that the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by Titus Vespasian when the Romans came in and they 
put out the rebellion of the Jews. So anyway, this is a very accurate prophecy. We know we have these timestamps of when Jesus is coming. We know who he was. He's God. We know where he's, he's going to be born to, Bethlehem. We know what his ministry is going to be about. He's going to give himself, going to give his life up as a ransom for other people, for those who would believe in his name. He would, it even talks about his death, his resurrection in Isaiah 53, right? His coming back to life, his seeing his own seed, those who believe in faith and then become children of God. He's going to rejoice in that. And then it comes, and then we have this, this timestamp of when it's got to, it's got to fall into, when it's going to happen. There's also types. People who, by analogy, foreshadow Jesus. And I love this type, Genesis 22. You remember in Genesis, that noble man, Abraham, who just messes up all the time. Well, he's given a second son, right, in his old age. I say second son. God refers to it as his only son. But um, he's given a son by his, his wife, Sarah, in his old age. And he names him Isaac. And, and God addresses Abraham about it. In verse 1 of uh, chapter 22, says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So a couple things to note. God calls him his only son, right? There's a significant, God's not dumb. God knows that Abraham had more than one son. But there's something significant and important about this son. He is the rightful heir of the promise that God made. He's the son of the spirit. He's not the son of the flesh. This is the son that God, God's purposes brought about. And he also recognizes the difference that Isaac holds in Abraham's life than Ishmael did. He also says, whom you love. And this is the first occurrence in the book of Genesis of this word love. God speaking of the love that Abraham has for his son Isaac, saying, offer him on Mount Moriah as a burnt offering. It's a mountain I'll show you. We'll read through it. So Abraham rose, verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. And took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Doesn't that show you some faith? I've been I've been last last year at the Pride Fest in uh, Ellsworth in an Alton Park. Someone came at me about this passage of scripture, talking about how God was vindictive and bloodthirsty, and he, he just loved child sacrifice. And, and of course, I assumed that he was talking about Jesus, because Jesus is the Son of God, but he wasn't. He was talking about Genesis 22. I said, explain to me what you're talking about, because when I asked, so you're talking about Jesus? And he's like, no. So he goes, is that passage in Genesis? Uh, he didn't say that. He just said the passage with Abraham and Isaac. I said, oh, Genesis 22. And he said, sure, whatever. And um, he talked about how God demanded that Abraham killed his son. I said, I actually never saw that. Show me where it says that. And uh, he's like, well, in the passage. And I said, it's Genesis 22. Do you want to show? And I opened up my Bible. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hand the Bible. I showed to him here. Um, forgive me if this isn't how the, the Hebrew should be translated. But in most Bibles, it is translated. Uh, take your son to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you, which I shall tell you, right? God's command is offer your son as a burnt offering. Don't get me wrong. I understand a burnt offering is incinerated, is burnt up. There's nothing left of it, right? But God's command is to offer him. And what you see here with Abraham is young men stay here because I'm going to take my boy, go worship God, and we're going to come back to you. If Abraham actually thought that after offering his son, he was going to be burnt up, he's not going to bring back a pile of ash and say, me and the boy have returned to you. We know that even in Hebrews, that Abraham believed that if he had to go so far as killing his son, God would raise him from the dead. 
right? Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham had that faith. But what we know about God is that he didn't actually require a human sacrifice. He just wanted to see where Abraham's heart was. Did he love God more than he loved Isaac? And so we'll read through it because there's, there's more to the story that's um, beautiful and it shows us more about Jesus. But it comes specifically right after that. So the end of verse 5, we'll go and worship and then we'll come back to you. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. So if this was a little boy, you probably assume that old man Abe would give Isaac the knife and the fire and he'd carry all the wood up the mountain. But he didn't. All the wood that he split and he brought along for the journey to burn up this burnt sacrifice, Isaac carried up the mountain. So we're talking about a strapping young lad, right? We're talking 20, 30 years old. This guy isn't. And so as you read on and you see Isaac laying down, right, as Abraham gives up his life, this is a strong adult child who trusts his father. This is, this is a shadow of Jesus, right? Jesus, a, an adult. This isn't some boy with, you know, delusions of grandeur, right? Like, I'm the son of God, right? No, this is, this, is, this is a man who's very sound in mind and also at the same time laying his life down willingly. And this isn't some little boy that's just like, whatever you say, daddy. No, this is a boy who's watched his father walk with God. And be sanctified through the stupidity, like all the all the things he's had to live through, and recognize, wow, God's still true, God's still faithful. I'm speaking of Abraham now. I'm not speaking of Jesus's relationship with his father. I don't know if I clarified that well enough, but the latter part was about Isaac's relationship with Abraham. So anyway, um, just for the sake of the type and the illustration, I'll read through the rest. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, verse seven his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars, the heaven, and the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. I read a little farther than I wanted to just because I didn't make a note of when to stop. But the illustration is that um, you, you see the type in Isaac and Abraham, the willingness of the son, the adult male child, to trust his father enough to potentially be murdered, to, to lay his life down, right, um, as a sacrifice that's being uh, commanded by God. But then, of course, God providing the ram in the thicket this is a type. This is a foreshadowing because God's going to provide the sacrifice. So it is a type, and the greater type is shown in the face of Jesus. And you guys probably know this psalm, and this is about where I'll end. But Psalm 22, right, it's considered a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of David. And David's writing what can arguably be about his own circumstances, but it doesn't quite match up with anything that actually we read occurring in David's life. So what we know, we can know confidently, is that he's speaking of a greater son, you know, and that is Jesus, who's also the son of David, 
whom David refers to as Lord, Psalm 110. But here in Psalm 22, the first verse is probably something you'll remember someone important saying. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And we read Jesus saying that. I believe it's the book of Matthew records Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's Eli, Eli, Alama Sabachthani, right? They cry it out. What you guys need to remember, or we all need to remember, is in that moment, while it's as true as the day is long, God is God the Son is giving up his place of divinity, right? His I shouldn't say he's giving up his place. He's giving up his his rights uh, uh, as the divine. He's laying his his um, divine rights down as a sacrifice and being cut off from the Father. He's also referencing the hymnal, the songbook of the Jews. He opens up with, and of course, this is ordained by God. This was certainly this was set up this way so that when Jesus opened up his mouth and cried that out in the hearing of all those people around the cross, they would recognize, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Right? The uh, classic example is if I say to you, "Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me." Right? And how effective is it? to use music to help you remember something. My daughter and I, she's six, um, we're in the process of memorizing Exodus chapter 20 in song form. I can't even say Exodus 20 anymore without singing it. But it's, it's really fun. She loves singing Exodus 20. We haven't gotten to the end of the chapter yet where God calls a donkey an ass in the King James. So I'm going to maybe have to explain some things to her. But we are doing it in the King James Version, you know. And honestly, I don't even know if she knows what that word is because she's probably never heard it before. I just thought I'd bring that up. But anyway, we're, we're learning it in the King James, and I'll start to say it. I'll just say, um, and God spake all these. And then all of a sudden, she just starts singing, I am the Lord thy God that I brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Right? She'll just go right on. She's got like the first seven verses down. Got seven verses out of Exodus 20. She's six years old, right? The hymnal book of the Jews, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If they're paying attention and they're allowing themselves to be caught up in the providence of God and not be over, I mean, probably not a lot of them did. I can't say I have a good track record of letting my anxiety go so I can hear what God's saying. Certainly not in a circumstance like this. You know, by God's grace, I can say, I am getting better at it by his grace. But I have never watched a man whose organs are exposed because he's been, you know, whipped with a cat at nine tails. But if you can cause yourself to be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that your request be made known to God, right? And the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. It will surpass all understanding in Christ Jesus. But anyway... Here, Jesus is alluding, well, not here, in Psalm 22, um, Jesus' allusion to it, they would naturally continue on singing out the psalm. Well, let's read it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I and am not silent, but you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. We read that in Isaiah 53. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Remember, Matthew said, and these things happen that it might be fulfilled, right? Verse 9, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. And in here, guys, I just think of 
all the hard drive we've wasted in our brains on secular songs, right? But if you allow yourself, you allow your heart and your mind to meditate on God's word, he'll write it. He'll write it on your heart that you'll be in step with him. You won't sin against God or you'll sin far less than you, you would if you're just still, you know, memorizing Ozzy Osbourne. But here, Psalm 22, verse 14, it gets really graphic. You can almost you can almost see yourself standing at the foot of the cross. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Right? You guys know the nail through the hands, through the through the uh, forearm there, and the nerve up there. Like I've read um, from martial art instructors that if you can't break away from someone who's trying to assault you, and they have your hand, if you strike them really hard in that nerve. It'll send a shooting pain to them, so they have to let go. Like even there's a, a child can produce enough pressure to cause uh, a, a grown man to let go because of the pain that's produced from the nerve in your forearm. And Jesus is nailed through right there, right? And of course, at the same time, you guys have probably heard that most of these people who are crucified die of suffocation. So even while it's right there, it's not like you can just let it sit there and get numb. Because if you want to breathe, you got to push up on it, right? So you can open up your lungs and breathe and then settle back in so you can suffocate for just a little while longer until you can push back up, right? And all your bones are out of joint. And then it says, um, and you guys you read also that the thieves, they broke their legs so that they die quicker. But then they saw Jesus. Jesus, he's already dead. Really? He's already dead? Well, let's make sure. And so they, they, they stab him in the side with the spear, right? And blood and water gush out. Um, medical doctors have, have um, commented on how, and I don't know what, exactly what it is, but that this is actually something that occurs. I don't remember what the term is. If I had more than an hour to prepare, maybe I would have tried to get it out for you guys. But the point is, Jesus' bones weren't broken. He was like that perfect sacrificial lamb, the firstborn without spot or blemish, no broken bones, right? That's Jesus. His bones are out of joint. His heart is like wax. It's melted, and it pours out of his side. Broken heart. Jesus' heart broke for us. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Oh my goodness, right? Are you not at the foot of the cross right now? But you, O oh Lord, do not be far from me. O oh my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, and the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And the families and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. <laughs> After the trial, he sings praise. Amen. Jesus set the example. All the prosperous of earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Amen. Holy cow. Jesus praised God. He trusted God. He quoted the psalm that spoke of God's faithfulness even in the middle of his trial, of God's victory, of God calling all the nations of the earth to him, right? This is a small fellowship, 
But here you are on a Wednesday night sitting in a, to me, reading out of the Bible, right? And we were probably have vastly diverse backgrounds, right? I don't know if, I don't know how vast ethnically or nationality wise, but God's made a family in this room, right? That's, that's a work that God performed. We have a choice though, and a trial like this makes me think of, um, it was a point that our pastor Will made a few weeks ago reading out of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 12, there's the, uh, the account of the widow, right? Because Jesus set the example. Jesus set the example, and it was prophesied that Jesus Christ would set the example, that he was going to be delivered up like this, and yet he would still praise God. In the Gospel of Mark, toward the end of chapter 12, it says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and how many who were rich put it in. Put in much, excuse me. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given into the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. This was a recognizable widow, still probably in her weeping um, apparel, right? People recognized when they looked at her, she's a widow. She was known to be a widow. And Jesus is seeing the hearts of which that the people are giving. Not only seeing what they're giving, but he's seeing their very attitude. He can see their faith, right? Jesus is God. And he, and he pulls them to him and he says, look, look at this widow. Everyone who's given here, she's given more than all of them. Everyone combined, add it all up. She gave two mites, but this widow gave everything she had. And Will made the point, and it stuck with me, that life is will beat you up, right? Probably not to the point where you're going to wind up on a cross after being whipped by a Roman. Well, that definitely won't happen. But <laughs> probably not to the point where you're going to get crucified. Okay. But you're still going to go through your own trials. And the choice you have to make is, are you going to praise the Lord? Are you going to wind up on your face and know that God can carry you through whatever you're going through? Because this woman, in her circumstance, could have taken those last two mites out to get a drink, right? Out to spend it on her flesh. You right now could be at a bar. I mean, it's a Wednesday night. But you could potentially be at a bar, right? You could be you could be shopping online, right? You could be thumbing through your phone. You could, there's tons of things you could be doing. You could be out sitting at a at a buffet line. But what God promises to us through the Scripture is sanctification. It's peace. It's life. Right? All those who have the Son have life. Jesus made that promise. Again, if I made that promise, I'd you know, probably be shipped off to the funny farm. Like I'd be out of my mind. But Jesus made that promise. And this woman, she trusted God in her poverty with no husband, no, no man to take care of her. She trusted her father, her father in heaven. I heard someone say it recently that people... Um, complain or make excuses because uh you know their dad wasn't the best you know they had daddy problems and um you know sometimes i wonder what life would have been like had i had a dad who raised me but i don't remember who said it <laughs> but the person said you know what we all have daddy problems that's why we need a new dad we need to be adopted by our heavenly father Right, Because no father is perfect, but we need to know why we believe. And we have to make a choice based on the evidence given for the person of Jesus Christ to worship and to trust him. And that has to be what we pass on to those who come behind us. Whether it's the people you disciple, whether it's your children, your grandchildren, you need to know why, you, why we believe. And like Paul and Apollos, you can prove who Jesus Christ is from the scripture. You can trust the scripture. And you can trust God. 
You can throw everything you have at his feet and you can trust the man who hung on a cross because he did it for you, right? He did it for me. And Jesus came to save us from our sin. He gives us, you know, Jesus, I think it's um, John 8. Jesus says that um, those who sin are a slave to sin, right? But the son has come that to give you life. I'm probably jumbling it all up. But Jesus said all that at some point or another, right? Those who sin are a slave to sin, but the son, but those who have the son have life, right? And Jesus gives us life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your son. We thank you for you. We thank you for the the desire you had to buy us back. I pray that it would cause humility in all of our lives, Lord. As Paul would say, um, that we're just like any other sinner, that we shouldn't be looking down our noses at anyone because you saved us by grace. It's only because of our, our faith that you are capable, completely able to save us, trusting that if we throw everything, all of our faculties on you, that you will do so. And that is how we're saved. It's simply by faith. It's by, gra- by your grace. And uh, you ask us just to believe, Father. Help us all to live in your spirit, to live by your spirit, to walk in your spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, to live a life conquering sin, to always be ready to give an account for the hope that we have, Lord, with fear and humility. Lord, to all those who ask, Father, we thank you so much for what you've done in our lives and what you've promised to continue doing. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.